Thank you, Chris, and good morning, everyone. My name is Ed, if we've not met, and we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, looking at Jesus' words to his church. Dear Pastor, Dear Pastor, I'm about to turn 40 and I'm still a virgin. I've seen the movie, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and, and am aware I'm about to become a comedy in the eyes of the world. Please, can you give me some hope? Dear Pastor, my partner and I have been dating for 18 months and have just moved in together. Some members of our Bible study group uh, were concerned about uh, what that would mean for us sexually. I assure them that we're mature Christians, that we've both been married before, and that sex is no big deal when you're our age. Yes, we do it from time to time, but God knows we're committed. Just wanted to check you're okay with that. Dear Pastor, my husband and I have been watching Game of Thrones, but I'm finding the sex scenes too explicit, so I suggested we turn it off. But he said it's just entertainment. He no longer comes to bed with me at night, but now stays up watching TV. I'm losing trust in what he's watching. Dear Pastor, I have a friend. He's just got a girlfriend and wants to know how far is too far. It's always a friend, isn't it? Dear Pastor, I'm not a Christian, but I have a friend who attends your church and he's gay. I'm deeply concerned about some of the things that members of your church have been saying to him. How can you say Jesus is on about love when the members of your church are telling him he can never experience love? Surely God would approve of two committed and faithful people expressing their love for each other in a committed, monogamous relationship, whether they're male or female. How can a good God deprive one of his followers of the basic right of sexual expression? Do you seriously intend to assign my friend to a life of subhuman, isolating celibacy? We live in a sexually saturated world. We live in a culture that is sexually confused, relationally compromised, morally complicated. We live in this sex-saturated world, and we have been called to follow Jesus Christ. And so today, as we explore this letter to the church in Thyatira, we're going to hear the words of Jesus Christ about how a Christian should live in a sex-saturated culture. I've summed up the words of this letter to the Thyatiran church in Revelation chapter 2 in these words that are on the screen. I'd love you to open up your Bibles to Revelation 2 as I read them out to you. A church too tolerant of sexual sin must repent and hold fast to Jesus. We're in Revelation chapter 2, page 1063 in your Bibles. pastoral word before we dive into to, uh, what we're going to explore today. Some of us here will have done things or had things done to us that we can do nothing about. We can't take them back. We can't become what we were before. We can't maybe erase them from our memory. But no matter who you are, what, you do, what you've done or what you've become, we know that we're here today to hear from a God who loves us, who forgives and who is in the business of making people new. There is no heart that sits in this building today that is too broken for God to not be able to piece it back 
together into a beautiful new creation, a new picture. Our God is a God who covers our failures, who forgets our past, and who heals us. And that is our great Christian hope. No matter where you've been, what you've done, what you might have become, God is making you new if you trust in Jesus Christ. And that is our great heavenly hope that we're going to finish up on today. But open your Bibles up to Revelation 2, and let's hear what Jesus says in this letter to Thyatira. As we do with each of our letters in the book of Revelation, we're going to go through that same consistent pattern. What do we learn about what do we know about the city? What do we learn about Jesus? What is it Jesus commends? What is it Jesus condemns? What does he exhort his Christian followers, his people to do? And then what is the hope, the promise that he holds out in front of them? So Thyatira. There's actually not that much that we know about Thyatira. It was just a run-of-the-mill city. We know that it was the city from which Lydia the first convert in the, in the city of Philippi came and she was a dealer in purple cloth. So it was a city that was full of trade guilds and uh, as we thought last week about Pergamum, similar to Pergamum, it was a city full of trade guilds and temples and worship of foreign gods and with them subsequent feasting, drunkenness, sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Well, Interestingly, interestingly, it was also the least important of all the cities in Revelation, but it receives the longest letter from Jesus. Not because the Thyatirans had more wrong with them, but because that is just the way that things are, are often with Jesus, isn't it? Those who are least important in the eyes of the world get the most attention from Jesus. Well, what does this letter reveal to us about Jesus? There's an interesting thing that, that happens for us here because this letter is the only one that introduces a new title or information about Jesus that's not explained in, to us in chapter 1. Have a look with me in verse 18. It says, These are the words of the Son of God. Son of God is a title of authority, and it's also a familial title. So Jesus has authority to teach us on sexual morality. But he's also family. These are words that come from an older brother who's not afraid to have the awkward conversation about sex and the things that happen in our life, but also words that are carried from a father's heart, a loving father who loves and treasures us. But the striking feature of Jesus in this letter, as we've just had demonstrated wonderfully by Vaughan, that was one of the best kids' talks I've ever seen in my life, Vaughan. Well done. It was really great is that Jesus is the one with eyes that are like blazing fire. Eyes like blazing fire. Now, uh, these eyes of blazing fire are both mesmerizing to look at, but more importantly, powerful, as Vaughan pointed out, for looking into you, into your heart. Later we're going to read in verse 23 that Jesus is the one who searches hearts and minds. There's nothing that happens in the dark, nothing that happens behind closed doors, nothing that takes place in your eyes, your mind, or your heart that Jesus does not see. And that is meant to be both a word of comfort and a word of confrontation. Uh, it's written to comfort you because if you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
then I know that just like me, you have fought many battles with sexual temptation. And sure, you may have lost some of those battles, but many of them you've won. And Jesus has watched you. He's watched you and he's celebrated that you have fought and won those battles with temptation and lust and and those constant barrage of sexual temptations that we face in our society. And he watches it and he celebrates you and your faithfulness to him. I know of a man who became a Christian in his mid-40s. And in his own words, he said he was heavily involved in the gay scene here in Sydney. And for him, the all-seeing eyes of Jesus were a deep comfort to him because they reminded him that it was, it was when the all-seeing... Is there a bird in this building? I just saw something flack before my eyes. But okay, it reminded him that when the, when the door was closed... He said, that was when I knew that Jesus was watching me most. That was a comfort to him, and that reminded him that that was when he had to really be on his guard. He had to really fight. But if the all-seeing eyes of Jesus just simply terrify you today, as you saw that image that Vaughan showed us before, if that is a frightening reality and just frightening, then may I suggest that there is business for you to do with God here today. And don't leave this building until you've done that. Lastly, we find out about Jesus, that he is the one who has feet like burnished bronze. Uh, Burnished bronze was an image of strength, strong things in the ancient world like shields and pillars in temples. They were made out of bronze. So it's a picture of strength and permanence. Jesus' bronze feet are a reminder to you that in a world that is so fluid in its sexual morality, that where sexual morality changes with the trends and tides of culture and whatever's most popular, it's good to know that our morality, Christian sexual morality, comes from a God who is unchanging and immovable. So what does Jesus, the all-seeing, all-knowing, unchanging older brother, see in the church of Thyatira that he wants to commend? What's his commendation? Well, if the church of Ephesus uh, was all hard work but no love, if they needed to return to that first work of the Christian life, which is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then the church of Thyatira stood in in stark contrast to that. Not only were they commended for still loving their Lord, they were now doing more than they did at first. Their, Their good deeds, which were a natural outworking of their loving heart, were trending upwards. So look what Jesus celebrates about them. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are, doing, uh, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus commends them for uh, pursuing and for possessing the, that trinity of Christian convictions. They are rich, he says, in faith, in hope, spurs from perseverance and in love. I need, I need you to hear this because um, as a Christian, I find myself, when I'm struggling in an area of compromise or temptation, I can tend to sort of put those struggle goggles over everything in my Christian life. And I just think, oh, I'm a failure here, I'm a failure everywhere. But Jesus doesn't see that. Jesus sees where, where they're having wins and he celebrates that. But also, 
Just because they're having wins in some areas doesn't mean that Jesus is not willing to confront them in areas that need to change. And so that's where we get to the condemnation. Jesus confronts the church he loves. You are too tolerant, he declares. You're just too tolerant. Verse 20. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We don't know whether there was a specific woman in Thyatira who was leading the church astray, or if this is just a collective noun that Jesus uses for people with compromised teaching and ethics in that, in that city and in that church. But what, what we do know is that Jesus sums them up, sums up their beliefs and their behaviours under that title, Jezebel. Do you know who Jezebel was? Jezebel from the Old Testament. Jezebel was a, a foreign woman who married King Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 16. Jezebel was a foreign daughter of the king of the Sidonians and she worshipped foreign gods and true to the warnings that were just prolific throughout the Old Testament scriptures, if you marry foreign women, they will turn your hearts after their foreign gods. And such was the case for Ahab. His heart was thoroughly turned away from the Lord God, the God of Israel. So much so that he began worshipping Baal, the the fertility god, and, and he began creating temples to Baal throughout Israel, a God who was worshipped through all sorts of terrible uh, sacrifices and all sorts of things within the temple, even through the uh, atrocity of temple prostitution. It wasn't just that, Ahab, uh, that, that she wanted Ahab to turn from the ways of God. No, Jezebel was famous for having 450 prophets of Baal eating at her table every day. So Jezebel propagated the teachings of Baal, and it wasn't just she wanted Ahab to believe it, she wanted everyone to believe it. She wanted to spread that wind and wave of teaching wherever she could. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't come across many people claiming to be prophets these days. But it was the teaching of this woman, Jezebel, that Jesus condemns them for holding on to. And we don't come across many people saying, I'm a prophet, I have this wind and wave of teaching. Uh, These words were written to a church which was in existence before Netflix, if you can imagine that time. Uh, It was a time before print media, radio media, television media. It was a time before movies and social media. This, This was written to a time when if you wanted to get an idea out there, you need to gather an audience. You needed to bring them in and teach them and tell them about this new wind or wave of teaching and all the freedoms that it would have. It's later called Satan's deep secrets. Often I find that people who indulge in deeper, uh, in, in deeper immorality often think or under some misguided perception that they are functioning at a higher spirituality. Well... These days, we can just stream New Age sexual ethics into our lounge rooms or even onto our phones in our bedrooms. And we just say that it's entertainment. But in God's eyes, it's education. 
Think about how many times every single day you are taught to think like the world in regards to sex. And you don't even have to seek it out and look for it. You can just be humbly minding your own business, driving your car down a road, and all of a sudden you pull up behind a bus and a semi-naked person is there trying to sell you tissues or yogurt on the back of a bus. It's everywhere we go. And everyone is using it to try and get ideas into our heads and to shape us. I have to say that I find sexual temptation to be the most constant and continuous, unrelenting assault on my Christian faith each and every day. It just never leaves us alone. And I work in the church. I work alongside Christian people. It's just such an affront for us these days. We're so constantly bombarded by it, and so so unwittingly do we swallow so much of the world's attitudes in regards to sex that I just wanted to pause here and just clarify what it is that Jesus teaches. What are Jesus' words when it comes to sexual morality? What does he say? Firstly, he says that sex is good. It is a gift from God. It was his idea. It's not like God sort of looked down and said, oh, goodness, man, look, what, look what they're getting up to. No, sex and sexual pleasure is God's design. It's God's invention. It's not the devil's. And God created it, and it's his good gift. And he also created it to be enjoyed in a certain place, not a bedroom, in a relational place of marriage. Uh, sex is God's gift to be a glue that binds husband and wife. Marriage, as God defines it, between a man and a woman, he gave it to them to, to knit them, to bond them together in a union, a, a physical, emotional, spiritual union. Secondly, if sex is not enjoyed in God's way, then it is not good. It might feel great, but taking God's gift and using it your own way will only mean that you or others, even others in the future, will get hurt. There's no such thing as casual sex. Every sexual union creates an emotional union, a physical, spiritual, a a relational union. And that union cannot get torn apart without people getting hurt, even if it's someone, as I said, in the future. Thirdly, if we're married, we must be faithful. Jesus taught that faithfulness begins in the eyes and in the mind and in the heart. It's no good saying that you have been faithful, but you are looking at pornography or you're watching shows that are compromising your sexual faithfulness. Or if you're unfaithfully connecting with someone who is not your spouse. Fourth, if we are single, be it never married or widowed or divorced, then we must be celibate. The Bible teaches that we are a family of faith. So in regards to that question of how far is too far, the Bible says that we are all family brothers and sisters. And so if you wouldn't do something with your brother or sister, then don't do it with your boyfriend, girlfriend, or anyone else for that matter. I found that when Bridget and myself were dating, a helpful guide for me was, this is God's daughter whom he loves and is out to protect. And this is potentially, until she's my wife, she, is someone else's. she could be someone else's wife. 
So I let that be my guide as we dated one another. And fifth, if we're single, or even worse, single and same-sex attracted, does this mean Jesus has bound us to a life of lonely sexual denial? First thing to say is that Jesus himself was single. Jesus was single and anything but lonely. He enjoyed rich, life-giving friendships that were deeply satisfying and not at all sexual. But Jesus, like everyone else, including those who are married, had to master his sexual desires. His urges could not be master of him. He had to master them. And so anyone, whether you're single or married, will need to master your sexual urges. You cannot be mastered by them. But I'm going to let Justin talk a little more on this challenge of being faithful to Jesus uh, through singleness in his life a little later. Now, if you're not living according to Jesus' sexual morality, or if you've not lived according to it in the past, then Jesus has a remedy. It's the remedy of repentance. Repentance means stopping the direction that you're going and turning around, heart, mind, body, soul, and turning yourself back to God. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, Jesus could never forgive me. Jesus could never forgive the things that I've done. Well, you're wrong. You are wrong. Jesus promises he will forgive anyone. There is nothing that Jesus will not forgive, and there is nobody that Jesus will not offer repentance to. Take a look with me in verse 21. Jesus said this, I have given, speaking of Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. That's so often the way with sexual sin, isn't it? That it can take hold of you. That it, it so gets hold of you that you think you could never live without it. You'll start to imagine that, that, that it couldn't, life could never be good without it. But sexual sin is a cruel, cruel master. It will always lead to death. Death of relationships. Death of personal intimacy with God. Death of connections with others. Death of confidence around other Christians. I regularly speak to Christians who are compromising in the area of sexual sin and they they say to me when they come to church, they just feel judged. And to whom I want to respond, you're not being judged, you're just feeling right condemnation as you live around God's people. It's right to feel condemned. So repent, Jesus says. Turn back to God, because if you don't, Jesus has a terrifying warning for us in verse 22. He says, I will cast Jezebel on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Here's the warning, friends. Jesus says, Jesus, the risen, reigning Lord of human history, the one with eyes like blazing fire, says he will actively oppose those who claim to love and follow him and who live in unrepentant sexual sin. We were warned in 1 Thessalonians, as Chris read to us before, that the Lord will punish all who commit such sins. And we see it in broken hearts, in broken relationships, broken marriages, broken homes, broken family systems. We see it in sexually transmitted diseases. It it does play out. And Jesus says he does it. Why? Verse 23, 
Second sentence, so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart and minds, that I do repay people according to their deeds. Well, now we come to an interesting twist in Jesus' letter and his exhortation. Whilst the whole church is condemned for tolerating the teaching of Jezebel and sexual sin throughout the Bible is always a community problem because a little yeast, as the scriptures say, spreads throughout the whole batch. Sexual sin is everyone's business, and so we must all take responsibility for it and make sure it doesn't exist amongst us. But Jesus acknowledges that not everyone had hopped into bed with Jezebel in Thyatira. So to them, Jesus offers these words of comfort. Verse 24, towards the end, he says, To those who have not held on to Jezebel's teachings, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. If that's you, if you've been fighting this good fight of sexual purity, then Jesus says, just hold on. Don't respond to the extreme laxity of others by extreme rigidity in yourself. I know some Christians who are too afraid to talk to the opposite sex in case they fear of fear become attracted to that person. You know, don't become too, too rigid. We are free. There is great freedom in Jesus Christ. So live in that freedom. But Jesus says, hold on to him and don't let go. And to those of you who do, Jesus doesn't promise a happy marriage or 2.4 children or a house with, with two cars and a garage. No, life may be challenging for you, but Jesus promises you great things in the life to come. That's his promise that we'll finish up on. Hear these lovely words from John Stott, great Christian author, single man, single celibate Christian man till his death. He wrote these words that sum up Jesus promise, what Jesus promises here in, in this letter. He says, Those who have come to rule their passions in this life will rule the nations in the next. It's a remarkable promise from Jesus there, isn't it? Verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. You've been faithful in small matters, Jesus says, in private matters, in the dark, in secret. I will entrust you with big treasures in the life to come. You who believe and hold fast to Jesus and follow his teaching on sexual morality, whether you're single, same-sex attracted, or married, divorced, or widowed, if you're fighting for sexual purity in this sex-crazed world, Jesus says, you are a hero in the eyes of heaven. You may be mocked in this world. You may be looked down on, feel like you're missing out. But you are a hero in the age to come, and you will be sat on a throne. You will rule over the nations, and people will see this great battle that you've been fighting. Friends, if, if that's you, if you've been one of these heroes, keep it up. Hold fast to Jesus. Never let him go. And he promises you that he will give you himself, the morning star, the gift of himself to be satisfied fully and finally and forever in heaven. We're going to finish this morning by hearing from Justin. Justin's an intern here at our church. And uh, Justin has started serving here. He's going to share what it looks like for him to hold fast to Jesus in this sexually saturated world.
Um, thank you, Ed. Um, yeah, for your message just then and for the way you speak um, so clearly in this space and so um, just like courageously or just, I mean, pastors in my experience have just avoided a lot of the things that you've just mentioned just in terms of the topic or when they've been speaking about it, they've been so like awkward and weird, but I just thank you for, even if you felt that, um, for just going for it because um, that for me brings some healing and um, so sexuality, this is an area that's definitely been um, uh, really difficult for me. Um, it still is at times, for sure. Um, and my story is that I experience um, strong sexual and physical attraction towards the same sex. So there's parts within me that just have a deep, you know, longing for intimacy, affection, um, affirmation um, from other men. Um, and that's been part of my daily experience for about 20 years, you know, since... 11, 12, 13, about that age. And yet, it's certainly been the most tough part of my journey of faith. Um, and I know that sexuality, as I've talked to people, isn't easy for anyone. We all have our unique struggles. Um, but as someone who has like an atypical um, type of attraction, and from people I've talked to who have similar experiences to me, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we have, you know, extra difficulty here. Because um, while the commands in the Bible are the same, um, uh, when there's no feasible place for you to express your sexuality, there's a certain calling on that that feels a bit different for people in similar situations to me, um, where there's, even for a long, a person who's been single their whole life, which is really difficult in its own way, for a same-sex attracted person, there's no real hope of that really ever changing in a way that you want. Um, and yet, while that's a, a truth, uh, I also feel that sadly the church has been, um, yeah, while this is probably a group that needs the most support, um, there's probably been the least support available to them, and I think that's a sadness, um, and is no wonder that over the years people have really not felt welcome in church um, as part of that whole thing. Um, or if people are around, and I, you know, I've been one for many years, and this is my first time really speaking so openly about it, um, there's people who are in here, and... Um, and are part of our churches, so we are really struggling with it and trying to work it all out. Um, yeah, but I wonder if there would be more if there was just more that sense of, of support. And so before I go any further, I just wanted to share some three basic statements um, for anyone who may be in here or you may have loved ones who have some of that experience. Um, and I want you to know, um, that's what I've learned, is that you are welcome here and you are not alone and you are holy and deeply loved by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's my prayer today that um, you would feel a sense of belonging here, and that if you haven't already, that you would encounter Jesus' love for yourself. And so I'm trying to... I'll keep moving on, because, uh, uh, yeah, um, there's a lot I could say in this whole space. Um, but, you know, reading the passage today and knowing that this is difficult... Um, I'm still so thankful for the way that God has, has held me and continues to hold me. And since today, I just wanted to share a few things on my journey that I've learned along the way. And the first thing that's been really powerful for me is to, I think for any of us in this whole space, is just to meet with Jesus. Um, working through issues of sexuality are really messy. 
Um, and there's deep emotions that, that well up, and sometimes you know them, and that's, I think, a small portion of them, but a lot of the things, you don't even know why you're feeling a certain way, and so much is to do with relationships and intimacy. Um, and sometimes those emotions make it easier. You might be feeling fine, and things are good, but sometimes it's really hard. Um, but in all this space, it's just so important, at least in my experiences, what I found so important, just to talk to Jesus about all of this stuff. You know, start with all the things you're grieved about, all your questions, all your frustrations, all the things you, uh, yeah, you just, um, you, you're missing or you want, and just be completely honest with him. And over my years, I've got journals just full of just, uh, you know, questions, thoughts, and a lot of that is temper tantrums. I just feel like I just, some days I just, just had to let it all out, how I really felt about God and his you know, how he speaks in this space. But I actually think God, God's fine with that. He's okay. He can deal with our little temper tantrum, just like we can deal with our toddlers when they're having those moments. Um, so meet with Jesus. Read God's word. Read his word. Study what it says for yourself and work out what he's saying. Uh, or maybe just sit under some worship music and be close with him there. Um, yeah, God's word is not limited and it has profound depths and insights. So whatever your experience of church has been, or for those loved ones, um, I would just encourage them to get into Jesus, get into his word. Second thing that's really important is to meet and share with his people. So try and get through, we know this, life by yourself is super tough, and the Christian life. And meeting with God's people, and especially in this space, while it might be awkward, or it might be difficult, or it might take a long time to bear fruit, it's still so significant. Personally, in my journey, there were times where I really just, like, to dwell in, in God's presence and in, sit under Jesus was, like, physically, like, painful. I would come into church and I would feel sick and nauseous and I would need to, like, leave in the middle of a sermon because I was feeling so spiritually drained and out of strength. And, um, and I really hope that others don't have that experience. But the reality is I did have that experience. And I, you know, my Bible felt like it weighed 20 kilos. Like, it was, like... It was a real weight and effort to, to spend time with him. But I'm just so glad that I had a few Christian brothers and sisters at that time who would just pray for me. And they would read the scripture for me when I couldn't really do that for myself. And they carried me and um, supported me through. Um, and the third thing that's really significant is to dwell in God's rich promises, a lot of which Ed's already shared today. And so while there's a lot of deep pain that I have experienced in, and the fact that I can't ex express or explore this part of my sexuality, um, I know that to be apart from Jesus would be far worse. Bigger than all these sorts of troubles is God's strength, God's love. And so meditating on scripture has been so significant in keeping me going. If I just share um, one favorite, and that's from Psalm 73. God says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I just love Psalm 73. Um, and it's been really significant parts of my journey for sure. And just that promise that God is always with us. He always guides us. He's the strength of our heart when we've got nothing left. He's the strength of our portion. I love that idea of portion, like 
Because sometimes for me, when I feel like where I'm hurting, it's like this portion that I can't even express. But portion, I think, sums that up a little bit in terms of our being. And in other parts in Scripture, we know that he chooses us, what's and all. He adopts us into his family. He lavishes us with grace upon grace. He knows us and our desires deeper than we even know ourselves. And we can trust that he knows what is best for us, and he's slowly taking us there. And so when I sit under those sorts of promises, it just brings, for me, everything back in perspective. And I wouldn't want to do life any other way than in the arms of Jesus. Thank you, Justin. Let's give him a round of applause for sharing. It's really wonderful, brother. We, we want to finish by praying for Justin and thanking God for what he's spoken to us this morning. Why don't we close in prayer? God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for heroes in our church like Justin. Uh, you, with your all-seeing eyes, Lord Jesus, you see his heart and the heart of each of us. And, Father, you celebrate those battles that have been fought and won, and a battle has been fought here today as he stands and testifies to your goodness in the midst of uh, this challenge of his same-sex attraction and his commitments to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold on to him and help him to continue to be a vessel through whom you uh, instruct and guide others to trust you and hold fast to you too. God, we pray that in this world that is so uh, sexually saturated that we would not tolerate sexual sin in ourselves or in our midst, that we would repent where that is needed and that we would hold fast to Jesus, the one who offers us that heavenly hope of ruling the nations, of having him and being satisfied in him forever and ever. God, strengthen our hearts as we serve you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.